from Hollywood, it's rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio. I am your host, Rob Watson, and as always, we have a really fascinating show lined up for you. Um, Today, we are diving into um, a unique topic, the um, lives of immigrant sons, um, particularly uh, ones that are in the L.A. area. Um, The guest, who is actually, he's a professor, so he will be calling in shortly, Um, uh, but his name is Anthony Ocampo. And he wrote a book called Brown and Gay in L.A., The Lives of Immigrant Sons. And the book focuses on the sons of new immigrants who arrived in the United States after the passage of the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965. Um, The book is an intimate and sometimes heartbreaking portrait of young men. um, And he met with and interviewed um, a whole a whole group of them, um, and they struggle with the tensions between making their parents proud and their own sense of pride uh, with being viewed as normal by the family and becoming their own person. Um, when uh, Anthony calls in, we will talk further with him about that. Um, he is a professor of sociology at California State Polytech University, Pomona, uh, his work, by the way, has been featured on NPR, NBC News, BuzzFeed, GQ, and the Los Angeles Times. So, uh, and now, at rated LGBT radio up um, in that roster. So, we look forward to talking to him about um, that topic, um, focused particularly on young men who are um, Filipino and gay, and Latino and gay. Um, and their experiences. So we look forward to talking to him in a few minutes. Um, in the meantime, I do want to welcome onto the show my uh, beloved co-host and the editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine. Um, I almost said Los Angeles Times, but he'll get there one day, I'm sure. Um, anyway, here is Brody Levesque. Brody, welcome to the show. Hey, Rob. Good afternoon. Well, we are looking at yet an interesting week in the state of Florida. Um, Tuesday, as you know, uh, was primary season um, across the United States uh, in other store uh, in other states, and two of the most important ones were in New York and Florida. Florida, in particular, because of the "Don't Say Gay" law, the book banning, uh, and the trans- anti-transgender healthcare initiatives undertaken by the DeSantis administration. Um, We did really well. Some of the guests who were on the show uh, recently, Cameron Drigger, uh, Alyssa, Jack Petz, and the kids from Flagler, uh, were able to defeat the school board member that caused them the most amount of difficulty and problems, uh, and she no longer is on the school board. So I'd like to give Cameron, Alyssa, Jack, uh, and the crew at Flagler uh, high school, Palm Coast High School, a big shout-out. Well done, guys. Um, 
along the same uh, thought and venue, um, we've been reporting on this uh, in the L.A. Blade uh, for a couple of weeks. There was a situation that took place, and I believe I mentioned it last week on the show, at Boston Children's Hospital, uh, where a lot of misinformation and outright lies and, quite frankly, fabrications um, had been put out there uh, by a YouTube and Twitter account known as the Libs of TikTok. Uh, and this is run by a Brooklyn uh, real estate agent. Uh, it's basically an anti-LGBTQ, anti-black, you name it, she gets in there. But she, unfortunately, when she does her pylons, uh, she often attracts um, the unsavory elements in the far-right extremist white Christian nationalist community. Um, now, we initially thought, and according to Meta, which owns Facebook, uh, that she'd been banned. In fact, she even tweeted about that. Well, it turns out mm-hmm. she wasn't banned at all. Um, so it became apparent in conversations we had with Facebook that they hadn't banned her. Uh, GLAD, which is the number one advocacy group for the LGBTQ people uh, and community across the United States and the world uh, in terms of stopping defamation uh, reacted. And uh, Rich Ferraro, who's class chief communications officer, um, noted that, you know, in a statement he uh, said to me that lives of TikTok is synonymous with the malicious targeting of LGBTQ organizations, people, and the allies. Um, what happens then is, is that Companies like Meta and Twitter and any of the social media platforms uh, therefore become complicit uh, as long as they're hosting that content. Now, I've uh, contacted Meta uh, because, as you know, they own Facebook and Instagram and uh, Twitter Direct, and we've had uh, virtually no comment from from those platforms. Uh, And unfortunately and sadly, uh, the webs of TikTok, uh, and that's uh, Chaya Rechik is her name, uh, continues uh, in a never-ending parade uh, of, quite frankly, outright hate and nonsense. Um, and, and it's important, too, because, Rob, if you look at just not only what she does, but she's also fueling the fire uh, into the narrative, and she actually helps spread the groomer narrative uh, that we've seen in Florida, for example, uh, right. by DeSantis and his people, um, which is what the kids, you know, were fighting against with the woman that they got bounced out of that school board, uh, you know, position. But it goes further than that. Um, Los Angeles Blade columnist uh, James Finn did a piece that uh, was just published today. And there was a teacher uh, in Oklahoma, in Norman, which is a suburb of Oklahoma City. And she was literally forced out of her job because they had put a ban in place on any questionable materials, basically a book ban, if you will. Uh, And these would have been on books covering LGBTQ uh, topics and themes, uh, even some uh, books and uh, materials on black leadership and you know, again, under the umbrella of we can't have critical race theory, which, again, for the umpteenth time, is not taught in a secondary classroom anywhere in this country, folks. Um, So what she did was there was a project that was unveiled about a year ago by the Brooklyn Public Library. 
and it's called Books Unbanned. And it was a direct reaction to the book banning, which got its start with a radical right outfit called the Moms of Liberty, uh, who are Florida-based. Uh, and they started chapters up all over the U.S. And like Oklahoma, Florida, Alabama, the list goes on, these people have been out banning books. So the good folks at the Brooklyn Public Library decided, well, we'll make uh, it so that kids from anywhere in the U.S. can get a library card digitally from us, and we will send them books, and they can read the books to their heart's content. So that's what they did. They started the Books Unbanned uh, program, which, by the way, if you folks are interested in that program, and an aside, uh, just go to LosAngelesBlade.com, and the article is entitled Teacher Yank from Classroom. There's a QR code that you can put your smartphone on, and that will get you right to the library card. Anyway, so, Summer Boy Brody, I have a question. Was, yeah, I have a question for you on that. Um, the, mm-hmm. the teacher gave this code to her students. Her students, um, yeah. Yeah. So is this a code that anybody can get and anybody can access that library for free, or did she give them a special code that got them around something they would get otherwise? No, this this is a code that is publicly available, okay? This QR code um, is one that, and like I said, you can go to Los Angeles Blade, and you just hold your smartphone up over uh, the code, and it gives you the information on how to get a free library card from Brooklyn. It's a public library. And all Miss Bosmeer did was she simply made that code available in her classroom. She printed out a little piece of paper that had the uh, emblem of the library on it and the QR code, and the kids could have walked up with their smartphones and scanned it, and they could have gotten their own Brooklyn library card and been able to get books that you know, online especially, uh, to read the digital versions that uh, they wouldn't be able to get because these books have been banned out of classrooms and libraries, for example, in Oklahoma. So this is kind of um, one of these things where here's another example. And, again, a big part of this push, Rob, is this Moms for Liberty organization in Florida and, of course, some of the right-wing tracking on it. Uh, And here we have a case where a teacher actually lost her job, and all she simply did was make a QR code uh, available. Um, And again, um, the whole focus on this has to do with books that these minority Christian nationalist, white, whatever you want to call them, Mom for Liberty types, uh, are objecting to. Um, and they're objecting to it because these are not, you know, books that they want students to be able to have access to. Um, they claim that they sexualize. Um, but, right. I mean, it's it's kind of akin to, and I wrote about this, our cover story this week, as a matter of fact, it gets published tomorrow, uh, is entitled The March Towards Despotic Authoritarianism, DeSantis in Florida. And for my cover shot, is a picture taken on May 1833, and it was a book burning held by the Nazi Party in Berlin with a group of you know college students burning books by philosophers, thinkers, or, you know, and this includes the ancients like Socrates and Plato, and you know, so these these are the type of things. And then superimposed under that floating up, of course, is a picture of Ron DeSantis, the governor, because he's pretty much been signing off on this. Right. Um, 
this this is and and it is and it is moving around the country. The, there's a story yeah. today um, in Idaho about um, the director of the library in that community or one of the one of the communities in Idaho resigning because of the um, threats that uh, she and other um, the directors of the library system have gotten uh, because they're not even they are simply standing up for a policy on how they put books into the collection there where if if there are enough requests or if there are requests for books that they don't carry they then send for that book from another library for the patron and if they get enough requests for that particular title then they get the book and they add it to their own collection i mean that is the the process and they are getting all this pressure to ban books you know and they're getting death threats um it's it is definitely authoritarian and definitely starting to move into the fascist realm well and and the problem with this is that these are the type of things that we're starting to see virtually across the country as you pointed out uh, and it has become extremely problematic. Um, so we're kind of looking at, uh, you know, a push here to marginalize and erase, you know, actually several minority communities. It's not just the LGBTQ, public, uh, you know, population in the country that's being marginalized, although I will grant you um, that's the highest profile. But if, in no small way, they're also targeting black Americans because a lot of the books that they're going after are written by black authors and black activists. Right. Um, you know, the narrative for them uh, is completely counter to the reality of what history really was. Well, I mean, they're, uh, they're, they're also, trying to ban the di- diary of Anne Frank. I mean, it's like, yeah. yes, it's like, oh, yeah. the, 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 um, you know, they, as you pointed out already, you know, they're under the banner of, of, um, not wanting to have critical race theory, which they should actually look into, um, uh, not having that presented in schools. And to your point, that's not in any of the schools. But under that that call to action for them, they're basically ripping out any book that has to do with racial injustice. And that's ridiculous. That is obscene. And um, But, I mean, that's what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with reasonable people on this you know there there is not a reasonable voice for this kind of censorship so brody no, i want to move you along to arkansas what happened there uh we do have our guests waiting in the wings um but uh, i know you have an important story out of arkansas well in arkansas um actually uh, uh, what happened was in st louis the u.s eighth circuit court of appeals upheld an injunction which blocks enforcement of the Arkansas ban on gender-affirming health care for transgender adolescents, in other words, transgender minors. The law in Arkansas uh, had been passed that directly targeted uh, physicians and parents uh, from being able to provide gender-affirming care. The Eighth Circuit uh, went ahead and said not so fast. They upheld the lower court. Uh, injunction, and the ACLU announced it today. Um, 
I think this is kind of uh, important. I'm, I'm going to read a, a quick quote from uh, Chase Strangio, who's the Deputy Director for Transgender Justice at the ACLU's LGBTQ and HIV Project. This is a critical victory for transgender adolescents in Arkansas, their families, and their medical providers. The Eighth Circuit was abundantly clear that the state's ban on care does not advance any important governmental interest and that the state's defense of this law is lacking in legal or evidentiary support. The state has no business categorically singling out any kind of care for prohibition. We know that adolescents thrive with this care, support, and love. We are determined to keep fighting until this baseless law is permanently struck down. Um, Just a signal on this one, now that the Eighth Circuit has uh, made their ruling, this one will be fast-tracked, and we do expect it uh, at SCOTUS. Uh, Right now, uh, they're not taking anything on their calendar because they're basically on recess. Uh, However, there may be a chance that the justice may decide to pull this in for the fall calendar. And so this is a case that is kind of important because there's a similar injunction right now in Alabama over a law there that made medical care for transgender kids a felony for doctors. So we, and that's a different circuit court, that's the 11th circuit. The Supreme Court often has practice, since there's two similar cases with the same thematic legal definitions running through them may combine the two together and agree to hear them. So this isn't over with yet. Yeah, that's kind of scary given the makeup of the court right now. So, um, yeah, yeah, I hope hope that, uh, oh boy. Okay. Well, we'll see how that works out. Anyway, uh, let's move on. Um, we are, um, we have waiting for us online, which I'm going to bring on in just a minute is, author Anthony Ocampo, uh, and the book we are talking about and the theme we are talking about is Brown and Gay in L.A. Um, so with that, I mean, Hi, how's it Anthony, going? welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? Hey, how are you? Is my sound okay? Your sound is great. So um, okay, I wanted to get right into the, uh, the book. Uh, in the book, uh, you wrote that you're writing, you wrote the book because of a disconnect you witnessed between your academic training in sociology and your everyday life as a queer uh, Filipino-American son of immigrants. Uh, can you tell us about that? What, what was going on in your life that you were not seeing in your academic training? Yeah, so, you know, in my 20s, I was – a lot of things were happening – <laughs> but um, in my 20s, that's when I was in grad school for at UCLA. I was working on my PhD, and as folks know, when you're getting your PhD, it's all about you know developing expertise in a particular area. And my area that I chose was uh, immigration and race, in large part because um, I'm Filipino American. Those two issues have affected my life greatly. And what I noticed um, was that whenever I would read these texts almost overwhelmingly the type of stories that were told. In fact, all the stories that you would hear about immigration or race on the news whenever it was on, it, it presumed that the experiences um, of those folks were, were, were also heterosexual experiences, meaning that I didn't really see any um, gay Latino or gay Asian American stories being rendered um, 
in anything that I was reading. Um, and so there were, of course, like a, a few like story collections here or, or memoirs there, but when it came to the field of sociology, it was pretty slim pickings. Um, in my 20s at the same time, this was also my period of coming out of the closet. I was coming to my own queer sexuality and Whew, let's just say that my 20s were a very fun time. Uh, UCLA is not too far from West Hollywood. <laughs> and so uh, I was pretty much out like every like four or five times a week. And through that experience, I just came into contact with a ton of um, queer folks who also happened to be from immigrant backgrounds like mine. And um, what what stories would you have presented? Because I – I personally can think of one that I don't think got a lot of attention and it had to do with um, kind of border issues is we had an encampment of um, LGBTQ people coming up through Mexico from different uh, South American countries um, who are literally running for their lives because mm-hmm. the environments they came from, they were absolutely oppressed and persecuted and so their their journey had potentially a little more urgency than other people that were were coming up and wanting to immigrate. Though I think everybody was coming from situations they found untenable, um, and they were camped out. And Brody may have more information on this of what actually happened to them, but they were literally camped out. I think it was around Tijuana um, in in one encampment. Um, but are those the kind of stories that you were finding were missing? You know, um, I I would hear stories like that. I mean, your stories making me think of um, – I had a friend who was in law school actually at the same time I was in grad school who told me that one time when he was in, in, in court uh, for an asylum case, um, some, one of, someone that fit that criteria of being uh, – someone that whose biography fit um, the story you described as like a migrant that was literally like – trying to uh, come here because it was life or death. And then the judge saying, you know, well, you don't look gay because he wasn't wearing a skirt, for example. So um, in my book, I actually talk more about the experiences of, of young, young men, Latino, Filipino, who grew up in the United States, who were born in the United States, but whose parents are immigrants. Right. And, um, and what, what aspect of their lives, because, I mean, we're going to go into their stories, but what aspect of their lives were you not seeing in your sociology training? What, how are they? Was it just simply the the um, the track of being closeted in that kind of insular uh, cultural world that wasn't being represented? Yeah. So, yeah, so a lot of the, the the articles and books I was reading in sociology talked about with immigrant families in particular that um, it was very important when it came, you know, if, if immigrant families are working class or if they were lower income, it was it was an incredibly important factor if the family was um, quote unquote coherent, like very close knit, because what they couldn't have in um, resources they could have in social support or um, they could have in, you know, a sense of belonging and community. But at no point in those articles or or books did I ever hear sociologists write about how, well, if you're a queer kid growing up in an immigrant family or questioning or bi or lesbian, um, let's just say that 
all of the all of the activities related to your ethnic identity, whether it's you know going to church at a predominantly Latino church or Filipino church, or um, just going to um, like community gatherings, those are very stressful situations, right? I think a lot of uh, children of immigrants, including the son of immigrants that I, I interviewed, had this feeling that like what they do is a representation of how how good their families are or how well their their parents um, parented, and and in a lot of ways like that put them in the mindset of thinking like oh I can't come out as gay because it might potentially like hurt the reputation of my family or or it might be a slap in the face because my parents came here for you know so we can have a better life and here I am like kind of you know ruining mm-hmm. that dream by being gay. Those were the kind of thoughts that they they had growing up because in, in it, so much of their lives the issue of of being gay or queerness was was not talked about. So um, that's what ended up popping up their heads as just young children. Right. No, absolutely. And in the book, um, you you uh, share a question by scholar Imani Perry, um, and the 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 question you you pose in the book from from them is how do you become in a world bent on you not being and not becoming and um what you talked about how you as you wrote the book that um the second generation gay men's ability to exist was kind of under question and you just alluded to that as well um you know and they were impeded from being themselves but you also talk about an attitude that their 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 progress depended on their willingness to situate their stories as tragedy or triumph. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that for us and what what you meant by that? You know, in terms of that choice where they had to situate between tragedy or triumph. Yeah, I, that was a really interesting revelation. Whenever I talked about, you know, I asked uh, these young men to recount their lives. Uh, a lot of them really focused on some of the, you know, our lives are already multifaceted. We have good times. Everyone has, like, good times, bad times, like, angry times, um, joyful times, et cetera. But what I noticed was that um, in my conversations with these young men, a big chunk of their life stories were really anchored in experiences of trauma. So this, you know, as children, for example, I have a lot of young men who talk about, if they acted effeminately or, um, you know, if they, if they even um, appeared gay based off whatever, what type of music they listened to, they would get reprimanded very um, aggressively, um, often by fathers. Um, if they ever were watching TV and a gay character came on, you know, families would be like, you need to turn that shit off. That's, that's, that's bad. That's unnatural. That's sinful. Um, and that, you know, that creates an environment where um, queer sons of immigrants don't feel safe or only feel safe if they're able to compartmentalize that that aspect of who they are. Right. Um, that's one thing that I, I'm not sure you really went into because you were focusing on gay men in the book. But it seems like a, culturally in a lot of these situations – the the toxic masculinity which you do talk about um and you do allude to throughout um produces this environment where especially for trans women um it is physically dangerous 
Um, is that is that um, part of that sociological culture that you would like to see delved into more? Oh, absolutely. I think um, a lot of times people throw out the category of LGBTQ plus, but for the most part, it's it's often the case that they're referring to gay people or lesbian people. But it's even though the T is in that acronym, it's it's not often the case that people are centering the experiences of say like Black trans women or Latinx trans women or or Asian American trans women, who's while they are you know may or may not identify as queer and have overlapping experiences with you know gay sons of immigrants, have a very very different experience um, growing up. I, um, for this book, I did an interview trans people, um, but I did, you know, having trans friends and just reading and, and uh, befriending folks who are transgender and from immigrant families, there's, you know, there's the, there's a big difference in, in that when you think about something like gender um, affirmation surgery, that's the topic that would never come up for a cisgender gay man um, with their with their parents. In fact, a lot of the a lot of the young men that I interviewed, when they would come out to their to their parents, they would some of them would um, unfortunately <laughs> kind of throw effeminate gay men or trans trans people under the bus. They would say things like, "Well, I'm gay, but I, you know, at least I'm not wearing a dress, or at least I'm not acting like a girl." And so it was almost as if they, as much as masculinity was um, constraining and hurting their lives a lot of the gay men uh, would then embrace these mas- like hyper-masculine presentations of self as a way to be like an acceptable kind of gay. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, 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 I, I saw it as something where you describe situations in the book where they themselves were basically oppressed by this concept of masculinity that they had to adhere to, which, by the way, I don't think is actually totally unique to to their stories. I know that certainly was part of my experience as well. Um, but oh, the, for sure, yeah. But, but, but yeah, it's, I mean, we, we probably all, you know, had that. I mean, I remember as, as a adolescent being very careful just how I crossed my legs, you know, to make sure that I didn't accidentally cross it in a way that could be perceived as, as, as the way a woman would do it. But, um, but it seems like the, and what I was really kind of asking about was it kind of seems like that's on the same through line as that violence that trans women um, experience because a lot of those stories are where a hyper-masculine masculine man is so offended that, that a trans woman exists that they feel like they have a right to enact violence against them, like, you know, that they were an affront to that concept of masculinity that you described. Oh, I mean, there's endless stories, not just here in the United States, but also, you know, in other countries as well, where that that was the case where a, a straight man got into a sexual situation with a, with a woman that happened to be trans. And then when that was, revealed or in in danger or at risk of being revealed to someone beyond those two people, they felt at liberty to end that person's life, which is right. bananas. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. 
And I mean, I like that you talked about in the book, I know you had an experience with your cousin where your cousin um, and his sister had their Christmas presents mixed up and they each got the wrong color um, Nintendo DS <laughs> and yeah, he got the pink one, she got the blue one and he burst out crying. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that, what was going on there with that? Yeah, so this is a story that I, I remember really distinctly because um, I was I, I must have been in my late twenties at this point, but you know I was I was at a big family gathering, Filipino family gatherings um, can be quite large, multi generational. So we were literally at my cousin's house, um, all gathered around in in the living room. There must have been like thirty something people in the room. And, you know, one of the highlights of, of a Christmas celebration is when it comes time for kids to open presents. And so all the little kiddos were excited. They ran to the tree to open their presents. And what happened was that um, my my niece and nephew got the same present, which was a, a I don't know if folks remember, but like a Nintendo DS, which would be kind of like a Game Boy or, or a handheld console. Um, yeah, and I, have, when I my, have two um, two sons who are now 19 and 20, and trust me, I remember – Nintendo DS is very well. Oh, yeah. So my niece and nephew are literally like 21 and, and 19 at this point. So uh, yeah. exactly the same age as your sons. Um, so one of them, uh, the boy, opened up the present and he opened it up and he was, you could see on his face, he was thrilled because it's what he wanted. And then he saw that it was the pink one. Uh, and you could see his face just soured. And then he started bawling and it, it just crying uncontrollably because he had the pink. Even though the machine serves the same exact function, no matter what color it is, he just started crying. And then what was interesting is that everybody in the room just burst into laughter. They were laughing at the fact that, like, you know, he was disappointed at getting a pink present. Um, what really struck me, too, was that – and this is why I think gender is super powerful uh, – his sister, who's not that much older than him, she immediately tried to comfort him and say, here, here, here's the blue one. I'll take the pink one. This one's yours. And it didn't really, uh, he couldn't really fight the tears. He just kept on going. And it was just an illustration of how powerful these, these, these notions of masculinity are that like even at a young age when you're not even at the point where you're even thinking about sexuality, perhaps um, anything that renders, anything that makes a boy uh, be perceived as if they're a girl or 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 queer, perhaps. It is like a de- like honestly, death sentence is not the right word, but it's just really really uh, tragic for them. Right. Yeah. No. It's uh, and you pointed this out in your book, which is I had written an article a few years ago um, uh, to Toys R Us um, because I I I actually was asked to write it, but I went into Toys R Us. And I hadn't really noticed until I was conscious of it that they had the girl aisles, which were bright pink, and the boy aisles, which were (laughs) blue. And the boy aisles had all sorts of action figures, sports, all sorts of things like that. The girls were cooking and fashion, and that was it. Mm. That was the the two Mm -hmm. things. And uh, as a result of that article, actually, Toys R Us did change their signage. But it was – but you point out in, in your book as well that the, those designation of colors originally were arbitrary. They weren't, they, there's no reason pink is girls and blue is boys, really. 
In fact, they were the opposite, and you point this out as well. Um, what What is, in your mind, you talk about masculinity in the book, what to you is masculinity through the eyes of the, the men you interviewed? Yeah, masculinity, it's a really mass, uh, multifaceted concept, right? It's um, It's this, I mean, I think if I were to ask an everyday person on the street, like a lot of the men I interviewed, it's um, acting dominant, acting assertive, being um, detached from your emotions with the exception of anger, of course. Um, it also includes the way you dress and the way you walk. Um, a lot of the times the the young men that that is more effeminate talked about if they were too loud with their hands, when they spoke with their hands and gestured a certain way, they they were they lost, you know, they, their masculinity card was taken away. Or if they spoke in a way that had a lisp, for example, then all of a sudden mm-hmm. they were, you know, seen as less masculine or walked with a switch. Um, I was a young man that tended to walk on my tiptoes, and I have humongous calves because of it, uh, but oh. I was often called gay or or faggot because I walked on my tiptoes, which, you know, in theory has nothing to do with sexuality. So uh, those are the kind of actions and performances of masculinity that that popped up most often. Of course, there are other things like cultural tastes, like who you hang out with. It was considered less masculine to hang out with all the girls. If you didn't play basketball, you were considered less masculine. If you weren't into hip hop, you were, you know, that was another uh, performance of masculinity. So it's, 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 it's a combination of like behavior, um, behavior, ways of speaking, cultural taste. Right. Yeah. And there's one aspect that, uh, and you alluded to it already in our conversation, so I want to give you a little more space on it. Um, and, and actually this was true of my family and my upbringing as well. But the, you, you talked a lot about, and I found this kind of heart-tugging, actually, that the, the, the gentleman you talked to, the second generation, that their parents fought hard to get here and that, that when they arrived, they had expectations for their family, especially on carrying on the family name um, and establishing the family tradition. And these men felt that by being gay, they disrupted that. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and, and the impact that that had on them? For sure. Uh, I feel like if you talk to any person that's migrated here um, to the United States, as much as that was a choice, sometimes it's not a choice, but like for those that chose to come here, as much as they acknowledge that it's it's a good thing that they're in the United States, that's a really difficult, you untether from everything you know in the homeland. You go from being part of the dominant group to being in the minority, it, it, it's, it may be hard to adjust to the language or the culture. And it's, it, there's a lot of growing pains that come with that. And then you're also on, like separated from your family, which is its own emotional um, challenge as well. I think that what I, what I in, in, not in this book specifically, but in other conversations I've had with, with immigrants, one thing that can power immigrants through these difficult times is, the dream, right? The dream that, okay, my life is hard, but my kid's life may be better than mine. It'll be easier. I'm paving the way for them to have a 
the middle-class American dream. And so that's a very powerful um, force, I think, in the lives of immigrants and immigrant families. And, and some of these young men, a lot of these young men actually were straight up told, like, I came to the U.S. because I wanted you to have a better life. And so uh, the, the pressure of having to fulfill that dream, whether consciously or subconsciously, it, 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 was, it was something that was internalized for, for, for young men at a very young age. The, the gentleman in the book that I call Franklin, it's not his real name, he talks about being like in elementary school and already knowing that he had to be, you know, the good son and had to, had to go to school and get good grades and go to college. Um, and at one point in time when he's – old enough and economically equipped enough, you'd be the one to take care of the parents. Um, that was something that happened in my life too, where I wasn't even in junior high and my parents would say things like, are you going to take care of us when you get older? You're not going to put us in a nursing house. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Things like that. Um, but yeah, this is all to say uh, there is a lot of pressure that um, Latino, all Latino and all like I think Asian American kids are carrying. Um, I think a lot of there's like actual psychology studies that have shown that like sense of family obligation is incredibly high for um, Filipino, Latino, and Asian Americans. And so anything that detracts from that perfect image of being the you know the perfect immigrant son or the perfect immigrant daughter, that's um, that's a dangerous thing to toy with. Right. And obviously, right. gay um, gay is one of those things that would inter- interfere with that. Yeah, one thing that that uh, seems to creep into a lot of the stories is the influence of um, the Catholic Church and the mm-hmm. you know it's and and I know this for a lot of the families I know and and friends of mine um, the Catholic Church in especially Mexico and a lot of different countries is is super conservative. It's not it's not. Like a lot of the American Catholic Church, it can be kind of intellectual and you know, and less deep culturally, where the Catholic Church in in a lot of these other environments is much more um, predominant. Um, is it the same for people from the Philippines and from Mexico? Is, is I mean, is, is that force equal in each of those cultures, or is there a difference and what what are your thoughts on that influence in general? Oh, I think for both um, Latinos and Filipinos, religion is intertwined, right? To be Filipino is to be Catholic, and to be Catholic is Filipino. To be Mexican is to be uh, to be Catholic, and to be Catholic is to be Mexican. They're just so intertwined. Of course, there's examples of both groups where they're not religious or not Christian at all, but for the most part, it's still the case that the majority of of Filipinos and Latinos, and definitely the case with with the young men's families that I interviewed, that there were strong ties to the Catholic Church. So um, when you ask this question, it makes me really think of that um, this young man Franklin again, because he he talked about how um, you know his parents they came to the states. It, it was tough times for them economically. It was during the crash of 2008, um, and he remembered that for them, uh, one of the the places that felt like a sanctuary was the Catholic Church. It's a place where they could connect with other Filipinos. It was a place where they could, you know, uh, pray and pray that everything will be okay. At the same time, this was a space where, frankly, would hear negative images, uh, negative um, messages 
about gay people, whether it was subtle, like say, like the church saying that gay marriage is, a, is not a good thing, that we should protect marriage or whatever, uh, which happened a lot in 2008, <laughs> despite the fact that there should be separation of church and state. Uh, but also there were there, there were examples of, of of not just like the priests but members of the church that were of the same ethnicity that would say things like you know being gay is wrong or they might gossip about someone who's who's gay in, in the community and say that's sinful uh, and let's just say that like the young men picked up on that real quick and it 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 it, it, it made them internalize the message that like being gay is the worst thing you could be in the whole whole entire world. Did um did any of them because this is sort of a, out of out of the the realm a little bit, but um, there is such an observation, especially in the last few years, of historically the Catholic Church um, bombarding, oppressing, and um, thrusting itself upon indigenous people. Um, is there any sense of that within this? I mean, because it's just ironic that the tradition that is driving so many of these families is that Catholicism that historically was thrust upon their, their culture and their ancestors. Is there any sense of rebellion there, or is it just this is now our ours and our, and our experience? I think with the parents, I didn't speak to the parents specifically, but the sense I got was that um, there were a lot that were very strong, fervent Catholics. Think, you know, they, they do things like go to church every Sunday or have images of the Virgin Mary, like, plastered everywhere around the house. But there was also some folks that whose religiosity wasn't that parents whose religiosity wasn't that strong. So they were more like cultural Catholics, if you will. They didn't go to church. They're more like Easter, Christmas kind of Catholics, if that, or like you know weddings and funerals kind of Catholics. Uh, I didn't get the sense from the parents that there was any uh, critique about the the history of the church and that being like a mechanism of of domination and colonialism. But there were a couple young men, not very many, that when they went to college and learned, um, you know, they took ethnic studies classes or learned history classes and learned about the way uh, the Catholic Church used religion as a way to literally conquer <laughs> a lot of countries in Latin America or in the Philippines, um, it didn't sit well with them. And so when they were, fe- like, there, there's one young man in particular who I remember who used to feel really guilty that he wasn't, the good Catholic son that he used to be. And then he, he kind of used the, the history of violence in the Catholic church as a way to feel better about the fact that like, why am I going to feel bad about not being mm-hmm. part of this institution that has enacted violence um, historically? And the other thing that came up was why am I going to feel bad about this institution that has had a string of sexual abuses <laughs> uh, and covered yeah. it up? That was another, that was another big um uh, story that was that was brought up by a couple of the the men. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. Um, can you talk to me about their? They are in a position where um, the intersectionality of what they have to deal with, where they almost don't have a safe space to live in and to exist. I mean, they're they're in their families where um, you know 
when things come on television or they, they see instances of people being gay and if their family doesn't know that they even, they talk hatred, they talk violence, um, and then they go into the white world where they are um, they're persecuted for their ethnicity. Um, what what can you say about that? About that that dual um, cross they have to bear. Going back to Catholic imagery. Yeah, it's like in the immigrant communities and families, they're too gay to fit in there, and then in the, in the gay spaces, they're too non-white to fit in there, right? Uh, it was it was interesting to hear how folks navigated this and also how they eventually formed communities. Uh, you're right. Like I, I write a lot about how when uh, – I was thinking about this Mexican-American young man I interviewed who went to college and then was really excited because he was far away from his family. He moved out. He was living on his own. But then when he went to, like – the gay student organization, he was, you know, he was working class, low income. And then everyone that was there was very, um, was wealthy. Like they, they had really fancy clothes. Um, and he felt out of place, not because of the gay thing, but more because of race and class. Uh, I think too, that when you think about some mainstream gay places in LA or in other parts of the, the country, uh, it's still the case that a lot of those spaces are, are majority white. And, and in the gay world, there is this thing called, um, you know, Jason Orne is a sociologist who talks about this sexual racism, the way that either um, gay men of color are excluded, explicitly excluded, or are made to feel invisible in these gay spaces or not seen as attractive or desirable as partners unless they fit some trope of like the hyper-masculine black dude or like the, you know, sort of suave Latino or the effeminate Asian, right? So it was, it was, it was traumatizing on, on that front too. It was, it was, it was hard. Luckily, I think, yeah. and queer people are really creative, as you know, they found ways to find community, whether it be virtual or um, in person. So virtually, of course, there's like, there were online networking sites, chat rooms this again this was before smartphones when when i had like when they talked about their childhood they didn't have smartphones at the time they just had like internet where you actually had to sit somewhere in one place to look things up uh but but yeah they were able to find others that were like them through um social networking sites that were specifically gay and poc um and then of course when they were of age they could they had access to a car or a, a, they were old enough to drink them, you know, in LA, there's no shortage of gay spaces that are um, catered or populated or patronized by mostly folks of color. Um, they, right. they may not always be in West Hollywood, but, you know, in, in the San Fernando Valley or, or, or Silver Lake or downtown LA or, or Long Beach, there were, there were these vibrant communities, pockets of, 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 my gay men of color. In fact, I spent a lot of time in those places myself when I was first coming out. And it felt like, you know, to put it in the terms of cheers, a place where everybody knew your name. Right, right. Do, do you feel, because um, the, the group that you interviewed were men between the age of 18 and 36. And um, the, you, you also quoted a, um, uh, a Latinx writer who said 
that um, they, and, and we can apply it to, the, to that group, um, came of age in a culture where gay marriage went from cosmic impossibility to foregone conclusion to law of the land, which is actually pretty true. I mean, it's like the, those men grew up where, where it was hellacious being gay when they were born, and through a very quick period of time, you know, the culture has changed very much. And even the media has changed where in the 90s, you know, you didn't see a lot of representation where today you're seeing a lot more stories that are um, uh, queer people of color being represented. Um, do, you, do you feel like in 10 years that this experience for similar young men will be dramatically different? I hope so. I do think that popular representations of gay people are way more easily accessible than they are now, whether it's streaming channels or, or YouTube or podcasts or so, like, like so many of the young men talked about Tumblr and Instagram being a space where they could just literally see others who were like them, even if they didn't have those folks in their school. Uh, yeah, I think I think you're right. The the writer you're referring to that had that quote was Carmen Maria Machado. She wrote a book, a memoir called In the Dream House, and so I I, I quoted her, um, quoted that book, um, those words of hers in that book. But but yeah, I mean I am a child of the '80s, and so I remember when to be gay meant it was equated with the AIDS epidemic. It was equated with death. It was equated with uh, disease, and 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 even like popular representation. Like my, my first gay reference I think was uh, the movie Philadelphia by Tom Hanks, uh, starring Tom Hanks, right. where he's a lawyer who has um, AIDS, full blown AIDS, then, you know, gets fired because of it. But, um, but yeah, so in other words, there was, this is all to say like, there were no examples of gay people where gay people had a tomorrow. And, even when new shows started popping up, like in the in the 90s and early 2000s, like uh, Queer as Folk or, or Will and Grace, they were still mostly white. And while those were definitely, like, consumed by these men, uh, it was interesting to, like, it, it's interesting, it would be interesting to do, like, duplicate the study now. Because I think it would be very different because, um, first of all, I think same-sex marriage has accelerated the acceptance of queer folks mm-hmm. in a lot of places in the country. And a lot of the people that are very like popular gay icons are people of color. And that's, that's, that's pretty darn cool. Yeah. And some of the most landmark shows, I mean, Pose and, um, you know, almost all of them that you can name right now have, um, you know, very strong representation. Um, I just got to watching a league of their own, which is not gay men, um, that a lot of people <laughs> and very, you know, very much uh, people of color, um, you know, depiction in, in that as well. Um, we're down to our last few minutes here. Um, let, let's let's get some uh, housekeeping. Where can people get a hold of Brown and Gate in L.A.? For sure. Uh, you can order direct from publisher NYU Press. Um, you just Google NYU Press, Brown and Gate in L.A., and it'll automatically pop up. Of course, you can get it on um, support indie bookshops, like through bookshop.com. And that would be a great place to support your favorite independent bookstore. Uh, But yeah, those are the two places I'd recommend. Uh, And of course, like if ever you want to reach out, I'm pretty easy to find on Twitter. 
I'm at, at Anthony Ocampo or um, on my website, it's just anthonyocampo.com. But um, yeah, that's my favorite part about writing a book. Writing a book's not the easiest thing to do in the world, but the cool thing is it connects you to folks that you would have never had the chance to meet. So um, I'm excited to see what comes of this. Yeah, no, very exciting. Um, Anthony, we're down to our last three minutes. What uh, have we not asked that we should talk about? Yeah, I, you know, I, to your point about pose, I think that I just want to remind folks that just because you have a pose doesn't mean you can't have other representations of queer folks of color. And so if you're, I, I think my biggest message whenever a lot of times I get asked, like, what, what do you want people to do, right, if they're white or they're straight? And I think, like, what I would encourage folks to do is just go through the experiment and practice um, centering the, ex- the experiences of queer folks of color, right? If you have a, a friend who's um, queer and Latinx, like, just, like, take a moment to, to imagine, like, what their life must be like or what the world looks like from their lens. I think that one of the things I've been really struggling with is that you have a lot of people that voice their support for gay people, right? They're like, oh, I have a gay friend or a gay sibling. But when it comes down to it, like, they're not willing to partake in queer culture. Like, I can't tell you how many times, like, I have friends that are like, we support you. We we enjoy, like, we're happy you have a partner, but if you ask them to go to a gay club or to watch a gay television show, they're like, nah, I'm good, you know? And so I think that that's, that's not enough, right? I think that it's, we've been decentered so much in our lives that I feel like it's, it's, if you're, if you love someone, it's, it's worth taking the effort to let them be the center for once. Cool. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for everything you do uh, for writing the book and for joining us today on the show. Um, been a pleasure. And I want to thank Brody for his work on the LA blade and please do read that magazine. That's Los Angeles blade.com. It is actually one of the best publications for LGBTQ news that you can find anywhere. Um, originally researched, not just re, re, um, uh, recycling other people's work. Um, and we will be back again next week here at Rated LGBT Radio, and we are look forward to talking to you then about another topic. I don't know what it is, but I can tell you it will be terrific. Um, So join us then, and we will see you next week. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.